You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. This week, a remarkable trial of a couple of Norwegian men from the very early 1900s accused of murder. And what a story it is. Um, these guys were sentenced to hard labour for seven years. But that's not really the big story. Uh, it was for a murder of a man by the name of Ernest Burke in 1908 in Westport. Jared. Yeah, now this is a remarkable sort of heart-rendering story, really, from Westport in 1908, and there's nothing like a tale, is there, Graham, about a victim of injustice against a truly innocent man? Well, there was two in this case. Their names were um, Olaf Hanelin and uh, Anders Andersen, and they were both Norwegian seamen who were passing through Westport at the time. But it was a case that really captured the nation, not only during the trial, but for years afterwards, with comments and editorials to the paper, mainly because no government official, and certainly not the police, had any sort of remor sort of remorse about the event, and they they got it seriously wrong. And even when it was well proved that they'd got it wrong, you know, there was no sorry. There was certainly no compensation like there is today. What do they get today? Like if you can prove it, you can might be able to get a hundred thousand dollars a year from the crown for every year you're in prison. You know, if you're lucky. But there was nothing like that, Graham. They just got nothing. And I'm not saying that this was the very first wrongly convicted case in New Zealand, because I'm sure there were ones before, but it was really the first to sort of grip the nation. And it grabbed people by the throat in a way, because the, the evidence was taken from a total larrikin, and it was used to put these two men away for life with hard labour. It just wasn't fair, you know. And you've got to remember, of course, the West Coast, you know, it was founded by a very strong sort of Irish contingent and the, this story found sentiment amongst the people there who were used to the big brother element putting them down, you know. It's a fantastic story. I mean, the case isn't super riveting in itself. Well, it is in a way when you get into the circumstances, but just for the sheer case of injustice, we have quite a tradition in this country in some ways of injustice. These sort of cases bring it out and bring about the change, I guess. Yeah, Westport, probably famous for being a pretty wild town in 1908 still, uh, wouldn't it have been? Yeah, definitely. It's a river port, of course. There are 20 uh, seaboard towns named Westport in the world. It's the only one in the Southern Hemisphere. It's named after County Mayo and Ireland there. And 1861, there are only 80 people in Westport, but by 1867, it's only 60, six years later, there were 1,500 all coming to the goldfields. And then, of course, coal kicked off around 
1900 in a big way. So by 1908, it was quite a thriving little town. You know, on Palmerston Street, that's the main street. It would have been lined by shops and uh, and hotels, and it would have had a sort of dirt street, of course, and in the wet weather, it would have all become mud. But there were a lot of people doing their business in Westport. It was uh, a lot happening, and there were um, quite a lot of boats usually in port. So there was a, a, a certainly a, a lot of comings and goings. And I understand more pubs per capita than anywhere else. Yeah, that's right. And usually nearly all, all the things that happened in Westport, you know, the n- notorious things, always revolved around the pub and drinking and drunkenness and uh, loutish behaviour. And there was no shortage of that in, in any of those West Coast towns around that time. The police usually had their hands full. Uh, a lot of nights that the pubs were full. But on the night of Friday the 8th of May 1908, Westport wasn't, uh, it, was, it was any but a dead place and the hotels were doing their usual brisk trade and there were quite a few foreign seamen in port and there was even a show that was on in town Rip Van Winkle at the local theatre and uh, as usual there'd been a bit of a fight too outside a fish and chip shop there a fish shop and and that was nothing unusual the police attended to it but um, next morning there really was something out of the ordinary because it was heard that there'd been a murder in the town the night before now, an earnest John Burke had been killed in a shed at McLaughlin Stables. That's just across the road from the QCE Hotel. Now, I've just looked up the QCE Hotel. It stands for Quality, Cleanliness and Economy. <laughs> and actually, that was a sort of a franchise of very well-known hotels. In fact, the first hotel to open in Auckland, I understand, was the Q, was a QCE Hotel in Shortland Street. And uh, the one in Westport got changed to um, the Napoleon Third Hotel, and it later burned down, I think, in the 1920s. But the QCE Hotel in Westport was was a, a fine establishment, and uh, they were all run to a kind of strict franchise model by local owners. Anyway, uh, just across the road from that hotel was McLaughlin Stables, and this is where this man, Ernest John Burke, had been killed inside the shed. And, of course, anyone coming to town would put their horses in there for the night or whatever and uh, get them spruced up and fed. But the news spread rapidly and, and, and the town was buzzing with excitement and speculation the following day. They're going, who could have murdered this man? At what state was the body in? bashed up and beaten. But Burke, it was known. I mean, he, he wasn't innocent himself in a way. He'd, he'd been very drunk earlier in the evening and uh, quite a few people have seen and seen him and he would hardly been able to defend himself from an attack. So what was the motive would anyone have had for assaulting this man so brutally and, and then killing him? Now, the police were onto it and they arrested a, a rather aggressive young local larrikin, his name William Connolly for breaking the fish shop window <clears throat> when he was involved in a fight with two Norwegian seamen. Now, one of the seamen, Olaf Hallinan, he was arrested the following day uh, for being absent without leave from his ship, the Canopus. Now, a little later, Anders Anderson, uh, he was his friend, he was arrested on a similar charge. Now, the seamen had a quantity of tobacco on them. That wasn't sort of unusual for the day. Sometimes 
men carried quite a large quantity of tobacco after travelling, but they were released the following Wednesday, but they were arrested again that evening on the charge of murder. Now, it's quite interesting, this why Norwegians should be in Westport. I'm just going to divert just a little bit here, Graham, because the Norwegians are in the process of setting up a reasonably large whaling industry in New Zealand, south of New Zealand at that time in Antarctic waters, and they were using New Zealand as a kind of refitting base. A lot of people know there was a big Norwegian whaling base in um, Price's Inlet and Patterson Inlet, and that, that started about a year or so later, but they were... That's in Stewart Island, right? Yes, in Stewart Island. And, um, you know, and you can go down there today, there's a sort of remains of a dozen or so whaling boats, propellers and buildings, jetties, and there's an, even an entire sunken 1853 whaling boat. They were very fraternising people. They really got in with the locals, as uh, a lot of uh, people on Stewart Island are actually descended from Norwegian people. They've got ancestry. They have a lot of names like Olsen and Anderson. New Zealand was like the southern base of their sort of worldwide network, and that that Ross Sea fleet, and it really took a Mudson, the the um, Norwegian explorer. He reported huge numbers of whales, and it just took off in New Zealand. Um, the whole thing sort of changed from um, South Georgia to New Zealand, and in their first season alone down here, they got something like two hundred and twelve blue whales. It was quite an amazing thing. They were quite of amazing people, the Norwegians. But there was one captain, um, Larsen, Carl Larsen, and. Uh, he was a uh, sort of an old sea dog and explorer, and he led these Norwegian expeditions. But on one of them, he died five days out from Stewart Island and on their way to the Ross Sea. And the crew didn't even blink; they just kept going. They put him in the freezer and carried on to kill like, 200 whales in the next six months and brought him back home. They were a kind of a really down-to-earth people. But these two seamen in Westport would have been on a supply trip, and they'd gotten out in Westport and gotten into trouble. So the police were able to take a sort of a step mainly on the information given to them by this larrikin, Connolly. So the police just took Connolly's word for whatever went on, even though he was a bit of a bad egg in town. Yeah, and uh, it seems it absolutely seems amazing. He'd told them that he'd been present when Burke was beaten to death by the Norwegians. Now, Connolly cleverly implicated himself to a slight extent in the assault, and Hanelin, who he said was the man who struck first, and he'd given Burke a sort of, as he called it, quote, a gentle little tap. Right, that frequently makes things a little more convincing if you do. Yeah, that's right. And several people, um, witnesses, said that they had noticed blood on Helenin's clothing in the town on the night of the murder. And they were certain that this was before the fracas at the fish shop. Right, so with the fight at the fish shop, he could have got the blood in that encounter. Yeah, yeah, but this is right. before that. Yeah, exactly. Now, the police were satisfied. They almost became immediately satisfied that they had the guilty man, and this was confirmed in a preliminary hearing in the magistrate's court at Westport, a sort of statement of fact. So the two Norwegians were virtually immediately committed to the Supreme Court in Nelson for a trial late in July 1908, and that was going to be before Mr. Justice Chapman and uh, a couple of Crown prosecutors. 
The men were defended by relatively good counsel there, and it was the Crown's um, argument that the two accused killed and murdered Burke, and that the, the whole foundation of the Crown's case was the evidence provided by Connolly. So the defence was that the accused were not present at the time of the murder. All right, how this trial takes place and how a couple of men, one in particular, becomes a very sad victim of injustice in Westport in 1908. Outsiders, Norwegians this time, with Jared Heinmarsh. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Outsiders with Jared Heinmarsh, a couple of Norwegians, Westport, 1908, have themselves in a whole mess of trouble. There's been a fight, a uh, smashed window at a fish shop. This is uh, in Westport after drinking at a pub. But the next morning, a man's been found dead in the stables, beaten to death. And the testimony of a local arrogant by the name of William Connolly has said, yeah, I was sort of involved, but I didn't beat him to death. It was a couple of Norwegians that I was with. And the Norwegians are on trial for murder in Westport. Yeah, now the defence, of course, for these Norwegians was that they weren't even present at the time of the murder. But the Crown took entirely the evidence provided by Connolly. Now... Now, Colney had sworn upon oath, of course, that when they were going out of the shed, Hallinan had said to him, don't let on who killed the man. Now, there was much contradictory and conflicting evidence from numerous witnesses. Uh, they were all heard, and the trial was in its seventh day, and it was arousing really intense local interest when the counsel for the defence addressed the jury. And he said... There are three circumstances in the case that stand out. First, the complete failure of the Crown to connect accused with the murder. Secondly, the success of the defence in establishing an alibi. And thirdly, the failure of the Crown to show a motive for the crime. That was the counsel, uh, a guy called Herdman. Anyway, the suggestion was made by the um, Crown uh, was that the two Norwegians gave Burke a certain amount of the tobacco and their motive in luring him to the shed was to get the money. But this this theory just completely had fallen to the ground, you know, because the tobacco had been accounted for in various other ways. So this, this uh, the tobacco evidence was, was quite critical to the Crown, but there was actually no evidence, the defence suggested, that the accused men even knew Burke, let alone had any transactions with him at all. They were complete strangers who hadn't actually met him. But it's still Connolly that's being believed. Yeah, that's right. So it would sound relatively compelling, wouldn't it, with this local yeah. guy? Yeah. Our local guy and, uh, of course, two Norwegians probably couldn't speak English very well at all. So, uh, you know, they're on the back foot right from the start, of course. Again, the defence uh, got up and said... The whole of the evidence tends to show that the conduct of these men from the time they came ashore from their ship till the time of their arrest was the conduct of innocent men. 
what would have been the conduct of men who had committed such a brutal act, he asked. Would they have gone to see Rip Van Winkle or go to the fish shop for ham and eggs or plainly walked about the town covered in blood? Would they have been expected after going to the theatre to have gone to Lenny's hotel to flaunt their conduct? And so for the defence, there seemed overwhelming proof that Hellenin got the blood on his clothes from Connolly after he'd cut his hands at the fish shop. Right, despite other witnesses in town saying it was beforehand. That's correct. And they had been on the town, these uh, two. They'd gone to see Rip Van Winkle, they'd gone to a fish shop for ham and eggs, and they'd plainly walked around the town. So not very uh, murderous uh, sort of um, activity, was it, really? Yeah, although it's so hard to tell. People could say it's a double bluff. Yes, yeah. Now, instead of um, considering the case against these men, the jury were asked by the defence to consider the strength of a possible case against Connolly. And now he was the last man seen with Burke um, when he took the victim away, completely drunk from the hotel. And it seems amazing that the police didn't follow this line up, actually, a bit more carefully. But Connolly had said he'd never seen or known Burke before, but the defence had evidence of a Blackpool hotel keeper that the two had worked together at Blackpool. So Burke and Connolly had actually known each other together at Blackpool and worked together. So Connolly's caught in his first lie. Yes, exactly. And the council, the defence was certain that these two men were in the hotel together that night. Now, the Crown witness was implicated too, the defence said, by the fact that Burke's knife and a pipe similar to Burke's had been found in Connolly's pocket. Now, the defence said in court, he said, uh, Herdman got up and he said, it was as dark as pitch in the shed. How then could Connolly have seen blows struck? Connolly nevertheless said he could see in the darkness and graphically described a process of kicking, of the kicking that went on. He said he saw Anderson give Burke one or two and he went down. Now, when Connolly returned to the hotel, that was about 8.15, he was absolutely covered in mud, which was later found to be the same as the mud on Burke's clothing. He was huffing and puffing as if he was being involved in some sort of scuffle or some sort of exerting sort of um, activity. Connolly thought that the body would still be there next morning, the defence uh, submitted, and his, his story about taking Burke to his lodgings would all fit in, but he never dreamt that a discovery would be made in the night um, when um, old Hugh Duncan, now he was the stable's groom, and of course if anything untoward, any noise in the stable, he probably would have got up and checked, and he came up and had a look around to see if everything was all right, and and of course he came across the body. It was pointed out too that Connolly had a bad record as a boy. He'd been placed upon a training ship, it was called a reformatory training ship, before coming out to New Zealand. And and in, the, in this country he had also uh, acquired convictions for stealing and assault as well. It's not looking good for Connolly, but the prosecution was still pushing the case flat out. Where did he emigrate from? 
I'm sure it was England, actually. Um, yeah, and he'd been an absolute larrikin over there as well, and he'd been caught as a, a lad and put onto this training ship, uh, hopefully in some, like a borstal in a way, I suppose, the equivalent. Uh, but he'd come out to New Zealand and been a larrikin out here as well. The trial of two Norwegian men in Westport, 1908, accused of the murder, the brutal beating to death in the stables in Westport of Ernest Burke. Based on the evidence given by a local by the name of William Connolly, how the trial turns out and the fate of the Norwegians and Connolly will be resolved before the top of the hour. We'll take another break. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. The brutal murder of... Ernest Burke in Westport, 1908. Two Norwegians have been accused on the evidence of a local by the name of William Connolly, uh, who said he saw it happen and even took part a little bit, but I just gave him a couple of taps. But he says it was the Norwegians that gave him the fatal beating. They are on trial, probably for their lives in Westport. Gerard, um, OK, it's found that Connolly has... Uh, been caught in a lie or two, but it's still looking pretty bad for the Norwegians. Yeah, that's right. And and uh, Connolly was a very clever uh, sort of chap, really. You know, he knew that the accused Norwegians said they'd been seen in town with blood on their clothes, and he also knew about the smuggled tobacco that uh, apparently they had been carrying. Now, he contrived a way of escape for himself through this, of course, And but the defence were very clever too, and they, they put forward that the uh, hideous deed was committed by Connolly alone, and the motive was robbed and that Connolly told his story and tried to implicate the accused, of course, to save his own neck. Now, the Crown case was based on Connolly's account of what had happened and supported as it was by other witnesses, although fairly circumstantially, it has to be said, and it was pointed out that in a conversation Helen had with uh, Mr L.J. Cockery in the morning after the murder, Helen was alleged to have decided described how he had dealt with a man the previous evening and that this had tallied with Connolly's story of how Burke had been beaten to death. So there was a sort of little bit of cross-referencing going on and it certainly implicated the um, Norwegians in a way. Now, the prosecution said it was possible that the knife was put into Connolly's pocket by Hallinan, and it wasn't Connolly's at all, but Connolly was sure that the pipe found in his pocket was his own. Now, it just went on and on, Graham, and, and people were extremely interested in it, but summing up, uh, Mr Justice Chapman, he said that in um, several respects it was a, a most remarkable case, and it had been necessary to treat the evidence with so much detail, because it had been one of the most prolonged criminal trials in New Zealand. Now, you've got to remember, criminal trials were conducted quite quickly back in those days. A week for a criminal trial was a very long time. It's not like today where they have a lot of 
forensic evidence. The evidence was just out there straight away. And the connection between Burke and the tobacco, the, the judge said, was not clear enough for him to give a certain lead. It was a matter for the jury to consider. Now, after a retirement of four hours, the jury returned with the verdict that Anderson and Hallinan were both guilty of manslaughter. Ah, manslaughter. Mm, because it had been a fight, obviously. Now, both men immediately proclaimed their innocence from the dock, but His Honour pointed out that it was no good addressing him now. He said, you've... Quote, he said, you have been found guilty by a very intelligent jury after a very careful and patient trial. You have been defended by very able counsel and everything that could be said for you has been said. But your defence has not been strong enough to break down Connolly's statement. There have been independent circumstances which make his statement worthy of belief and with the evidence that supported that statement, the jury was quite justified in believing it. Uh, now, the judge then imposed a sentence of imprisonment, a hard labour for seven years for each of the accused. What a trip to Westport. I know. Wouldn't you regret going to town? The following afternoon, there were straight away uh, there were the rumours in Nelson that fresh developments were about to take place regarding the case. Now, later it appeared that a uh, Mr. McDonald had laid information against Colony. Now, he was the principal Crown witness and charged him with the murder of Burke. Now, Connolly was arrested. Fairly quickly, actually, he appeared before a magistrate and on the information being read, uh, MacDonald asked for a remand to Westport. Connolly's been suddenly arrested for... For, um, well, charged with the murder of Burt because the principal Crown witness, uh, Mr MacDonald, uh, had basically changed his story. When he'd seen the two men sentenced, surely he must have had a huge pang of conscience, I'd say, this witness, and thought, my God, I'm going to be in trouble too. Right, right, yeah. OK. Well, wh yeah. what a quick turnaround. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Anyway, after being sentenced, um, Helen and Anderson, they were put in the local jail and a few days later they were taken to Wellington. Now, a few days later again, they were on their way by sea back to Westport to give evidence against Connolly, who, who uh, appeared there in the magistrate's court. He was charged with the murder of Burke and also perjury arising out of the trial at Nelson. Oh, where's the trial at Nelson? Yeah, that's where the actual trial had been held. Oh, yeah. not at Westport. No, no, it was, a re it was taken out of Westport because they thought it might be too sensational, actually. Right. Yeah, and too many people involved. So they'd brought witnesses, all the witnesses, to Nelson. And there was no evidence offered in the murder charge, um, and that was dismissed. In the perjury case, there were 13 counts that he'd committed perjury. The clerk of the court said that Connolly's demeanour was that of a person telling lies and he appeared to be on the guard all the time. So they're not charging him with murder now? No, not quite yet. But anyway, they had to uh, then, of course, account for the evidence of the Norwegians. So giving evidence, Anderson traced his own movements on the night of the murder and he declared he was never in the vicinity of the place where Burke 
was killed. Now, Hellenin also gave evidence. He collaborated exactly what Anderson had said, and he said that uh, Cockery and others had misunderstood the fight and, and uh, that had been described in the earlier trials. Now, a woman witness came forward, and she said that she'd seen Burke and Connolly on the night of the 8th of May coming out of the uh, QCE hotel, <coughs> actually arm in arm, and Connolly was actually dragging the intoxicated Burke against his will over in the direction of McLaughlin's stable and shed, and Burke had fallen down, um, as she described it, and Connolly had struck him several blows with a bottle, and he afterwards dragged him into the shed. And no Norwegians to be seen? No, none at all. And when a man appeared with a lantern and a dog, presumably the groom, Connolly had hurried out of the back of the shed and over a fence. Ha! Ah, but he'd done, already killed him, done the deed. Yeah, he had. And so the story is now coming out very quickly after the case. Yeah, but th this where was this witness before? Exactly. Amazing. Took the actual um, conviction of the two Norwegians to actually bring out the witnesses who were probably now terrified, actually, of course, that they hadn't given evidence or be committed perjury. Now, she was cross-examined, of course, as female witness, and she said that she hadn't given her version of the uh, events before because she expected that Hanlon and um, Anderson, who she knew were innocent men, she just presumed they would get off. Yeah, this, this happens in quite a few cases, doesn't it? People it just does. think, oh, no, I, I won't give evidence, don't want to be involved. It's just going to ruin my life for a while. I'll, yeah. rather, I'll just step aside because they're bound to be found innocent and then we can all get some sleep. Yeah, and she said she didn't wish to get mixed up in the affair and now she considered it sort of was her duty to come forward and give evidence. Yeah. And during the hearing of the evidence that day, Anderson actually had a, a huge epileptic fit and he had to be carried from the court. You know, they were seriously affected, of course, by this. You, you'd have to be physically mutilated by it almost, wouldn't you? You know, this sort of thing. Several other witnesses who had also not given evidence at the earlier trials now came forward and their explanation was that they'd not wanted to get mixed up with the case as well. And they also said that they knew that the normal Norwegians, the two Norwegians were completely innocent. Now, Connolly got up for in his own defence and he repeated his former statements now with some additions of uh, information and, and under examination he said that he had not told a lie yet in the case but before he went to court he had told a good many lies about Burke's death and he gave the reasons for the various lies that he'd done and Connolly, he stood trial in the Supreme Court in Hokitika, so they took it south that time for the murder of Burke. He was there before Mr Justice Cooper again. He was represented and the hearing lasted for eight days and, and witnesses, all the witnesses now gave evidence. Anderson and Helen were now the principal witnesses against him and they positively denied Connolly's statements on which they were themselves convicted and on which the perjury charges were all founded on. And Connolly, under examination, he admitted that he'd told seven distinct lies at the Nelson trial. 
Right. He's now yeah. admitting to telling the lies. Yes, that's right. At the conclusion of the evidence, um, Justice Cooper, he remarked that this was the most extraordinary trial that had ever taken place in New Zealand, and it was so full of contradictions, and he spent five and a half hours summarising, summing it up, doing so in the accused's favour, interestingly enough. Oh, right. He was, yeah. he was thinking that... Connolly was innocent. He he was under the opinion that although Connolly stood convicted from his own admissions, there was no sort of corroborative or sort of reliable evidence that had been brought up that could change the verdict. But after a retirement of four hours, the jury brought in a verdict of guilty on eight counts and the prisoner was then sentenced to seven years imprisonment with hard labour. That's exactly what the um, Norwegians had got. Okay, so guilty of eight counts of perjury plus the manslaughter. Yeah, that's right. And now, as soon as he was convicted, Connolly now confessed to the chief detective that he had himself killed Burke. And he said it took the man, uh, he took the man out of the hotel with the intention of robbing him. And he said, Helenan and Anderson are innocent men and the story of their connection with the crime and the reference to the smuggled tobacco as the connecting link were concocted by me while in jail in order to save myself. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, it's, it's quite amazing to get this frank admission when his lies had passed muster right up until the summing up of the judge. Yeah, incredible, isn't it? Okay, so what now for the Norwegians and Connolly? Connolly's been found guilty of manslaughter and perjury uh, from a perjury from the first trial, which saw the conviction of the two Norwegians for the murder of Burke, 1908, in Westport. The trial was in Nelson, now down to Hokitika for the trial of Connolly. And finally, a confession from him. We'll find out what happened in the wake of this remarkable trial. As the judge said... Uh, the most remarkable in New Zealand history so far when we return. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. Another remarkable moment in New Zealand history is probably the most famous trial of its time. Uh, 1908, it was for the murder of Ernest Burke, 1908, two Norwegians were convicted. But it was pretty much on hearsay, he said, she said, evidence from a man named Connolly, who's now been found guilty of perjury and has admitted the whole thing was done by him and the Norwegians were innocent victims of the justice system. So, what happens to Connolly? What happens to the Norwegians? Okay, so Connolly, of course, is now residing in uh, jail, seven years of hard labour, and uh, at a crowded public meeting, it was convened by the uh, mayor of Westport there, and uh, huge public interest, it was decided to present a sort of a mark of recognition to um, the defence council for the Norwegians, uh, MacDonald and uh, Herdman, for their work over long hearings in various courts and demonstrating the innocence of Helen Ann and Anderson. Now, the judge in the case, he communicated the result of the whole process to the Minister of Justice and also the Prime Minister, Joseph Ward, and it was announced in the House of Representatives that Cabinet had decided to remit 
the balance of the sentences imposed on Helen Ann and Anderson and to order their release forthwith. Now, Because technically they were still guilty of the same murder. Yeah, incredible that they just remitted the rest of their sentence. There was no remorse shown at all. So they were immediately freed, but it was just too late for Anderson. His health had greatly deteriorated as a result of this. It was a real, it was an ordeal for him that he'd been through and and on November 1908, it was the same year that they were convicted, he died and it was said of a broken heart. And you can still see his tombstone in the Westport Cemetery and it's got the words on it, a victim of injustice. And it, it, it plagued a lot of people that, that there was never any apology made. In fact, I dug out a two years later, 1911 actually, 14th of January, page four of the New Zealand Truth, there was a big article, A Victim of Injustice, Pity Olaf Hellenin. talks about the case and, and it, it also commends the Norwegian consul in New Zealand, a guy called White, who virtually moved to Westport during the case to help these guys guys and he'd been commended by the King of Norway for his heroic efforts to obtain justice for Anders Anderson. In Norway he'd been touted as a victim of New Zealand injustice in the um, Norwegian papers and that how they'd been wrongly convicted of the murder of a man called Joseph Burke. Actually they got that uh, slightly wrong and, and they talked about the full and cruel circumstances of that gross and grave miscarriage of justice at the time and the Truth newspaper had undergone a sort of investigation. They said that they wanted to remind the people of New Zealand that no attempt had yet been made to repair the wrong done. These two unfortunate sailors, so shameless and wickedly unjust was the treatment given to them, resulting, as is well known, in the untimely end of Anderson. They go on to say that there was no offer of compensation whatsoever and uh, I'll also let you know about the compensation of the New Zealand government they offered him a suit of clothes footwear, uh, one set of clothes and also a pocket knife and they sent them in February last year but when he got them they were sitting in the police station for four months before he was offered them and when he went to get them they were full of holes where the moths had eaten them and he refused to take them and the letter calls for no comment in these columns, a victim of New Zealand injustice, and this friendless fellow has every reasonable cause for complaint. The least the government should do is give him that new suit of clothes. You know, Graham, and they never did. And this is Helenin? Yes, it is. And Anderson, of course, is, you know, buried under the ground in Westport, a victim of injustice. Do we know what happened to Helenin in the end? No, I've never quite managed. I didn't manage to find out what happened to him, but, man, he must be, uh, you know, have a uh, stricken uh, sort of insight into New Zealand, wouldn't he? To have that experience, yeah. I'd say. You'd think so. Yeah. Although, you know, it doesn't take much. Sometimes you just pick the wrong place at the wrong time and you rely on eyewitnesses and the guilty party to give evidence yeah. and be in one hell of a lot of trouble very quickly. Exactly, yeah. And at least they didn't rot in jail for years. No, it was only a matter of weeks, actually, I think. And they were out. That was a lucky one, wasn't it? Because, you know, these processes can take years. All right. Jared Hindmarsh, thank you very much. No, very good, Graham. Thank you.
Okay, another tale about ciders. And don't forget, you can check out the outsiders in the archive on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. It should be obvious. It's got a big sign on it that says Outsiders. Bulging with Outsider Tales from Jared Hindmarsh. It's our Outsiders archive on the Weekend Variety Wireless, face, uh, not Facebook page, the web page. Just Google it. It'll take you there. And on the right-hand side, you'll see a whole lot of different archives that we've got. Shipwreck Tales are there. And Outsiders, I think, easily the fullest. Uh, thank you very much to Jared Hindmarsh for all of those amazing stories. And the Burke murder will be going into the archive. It should be there Monday morning or thereabouts. So, uh, fill your boots. Go and enjoy them. Uh, also, if you want to listen to the program at your leisure, take it around with you. It's a podcast as well. It's podcast hour by hour, both Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, so I think there should be months worth going back if you want to hear some really out-of-date stuff. But a lot of it's timeless, isn't it? The Facebook page, which I inadvertently measured, is available as well. You can have your say about things. You can ask Max Cryer a question or Grant Christie or anybody, me, uh, and have a discussion amongst yourselves. I post a few things during the week for a heads up and uh, you can even make suggestions for the program if you like. Uh, so go along there, subscribe, do what you like. Uh, it's all yours. Alrighty. Uh, Ewan McCabe, our World Cup correspondent, World Cup of football that is, um, he's he's been tremendous. He, his book, The World Cup Baby, is great. It's been around for years and it still reads well. I've been reading tons of it just during this World Cup. Again, because it's fun. He's a skilled and vivid writer. Man, he can paint a picture. It's lovely. Uh, it is about the strangeness of the World Cup and the strangeness of his life and the World Cup of football. We'll be wrapping things up next week with Ewan McCabe uh, regarding the World Cup. I shall make no predictions. Never, ever have. My, the team I wanted to win, Uruguay. I think they love football more than any other nation. Yeah, even more than Brazil. Population, 3.4 million. The most successful footballing nation on the planet. Go check. And it wasn't just all in the 1920s. So I'm going to take, because we've got a little bit of time up to the news, and why not? It's late on a Sunday evening, I can tell you a little bit of a story. It's a football story, but it'll give you an idea of Ewan McCabe's writing. 
Uh, I will read from Will Cut Baby. In, I'm not reading now, you may recall, doesn't matter if you don't, there was this absolutely dreadful attack from a goalkeeper, uh, a German goalkeeper, on a French forward at a World Cup. It was a shocker. It's described in World Cup, baby. So wish me luck, here I go. The following words are Ewan McCabe's. Harold Tony Schumacher, born in 1954, would play 110 times in goal for West Germany. But he will always be most remembered for one sickening moment during the pulsating 1982 Seville semi-final against France. Good job too. He deserves no other legacy. Perhaps I'm being overly harsh. After all, Schumacher was the kind of enigmatic and colourful character that I usually find so infectious about the game of football. And he was an excellent keeper. He was obviously not a total maniac either, because the always demanding Germans would hand him the captain's armband later in his career. And besides, I'm hardly in a position to suddenly start mounting high horses of the pious kind, given my much-documented warts and all-World Cup outlook. Brazen incidents such as Tony Schumacher's assault on French substitute Patrick Batisson are supposedly what make the World Cup truly reflective of the human emotion. Fragile, despicable or other. Are they not? So, given this and my inclusive approach, I will allow you to decide how Tony Schumacher should be judged. This is a multi-choice one. Simply make what you consider the most appropriate choice. There will be no marking. This is purely a personal exercise. Question one. What do you consider the worst of the following options? Charging directly at a defenceless man in full flight. B. Intentionally leaping off the ground to pole-axe him around the head. C. Displaying not the slightest interest in his welfare as he lies unconscious on the ground, teeth shattered and body reflexively twitching like that of a car hit-and-run victim. D. Impatiently waiting to take the resultant goal kick as medics feverishly attempt to revive the victim, then finally stretcher him off. Question two, same as question one actually, what do you consider the worst of the following options? A, the assault itself. B, Schumacher's response to it. C, Dutch referees Charles Corver's belief that absolutely nothing contravening the rules of the game took place. D, that Schumacher was allowed to remain on the field and later influence the outcome of the match. Question three, same as questions one and two, actually. You should know the story by now. A, that Schumacher would also escape any punishment after the game. B, that Schumacher has never apologised to Batiston. C, that Schumacher has never apologised to anybody. D, that Schumacher later claimed his actions did not constitute a foul. Seldom can any situation prove so unsavoury and yet so farcical at the same time. That's a segment from World Cup, baby. It's available uh, online. You can go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. We've got a direct link so you can buy one if you like. Go on. He's a good guy, you and McCabe. He'll be back next week.
Tony Amos with Overnight Talk, 0800 844 747. 0800 844 747. I will see you next week. Pop into the Facebook page, Weekend Variety Wilds, to see what's coming up. <laughs>